Hi, I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And we're from the Endless Knot podcast, a podcast about history, etymology, language, literature, and connections of all sorts. We're here to introduce the History of Ancient Greece's episode on the Ionian Revolt. We've been fans of Ryan's work since his first episodes. As a Romanist... And a medievalist... We're always interested in the history that lies behind our own periods. Our own podcast often covers Greek language, literature, and myth, like our episode about Pluto. Or the one about words for farm animals in Greek and Latin. Or our series about color terms and symbolism in Greek, Latin, and Old English. So, when you've listened to this episode of Greek History, maybe come check out The Endless Knot and see how all these things connect. Now, for the last few episodes, Ryan's been focusing on Persia, giving us some of the background that Herodotus's Hellenocentric storytelling either doesn't know or kind of skews. I think he's been doing a really good job of balancing the fun, sometimes gruesome or incredible stories with the more prosaic and sadly more probable versions. But now he's turning to what can be called the first phase of the Greco-Persian Wars, the revolt by a group of Ionian Greek cities against their Persian-supported tyrants, and against Darius more generally. So, now we'll turn it over to him, and let's hear how it all got started. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 35, The Ionian Revolt. The first spark of a two-decades-long war between the Greeks and the Persians is what modern scholars call the Ionian Revolt. Perhaps the strongest reason was the Greeks' immensely powerful love of freedom. Discontent in Ionia was considerable. Taxes had risen under Persian rule, and the Greeks resented the puppet tyrants that the Persians had imposed. Their irritation may have been increased by the existence by this stage of democracy at Athens. Regardless of how ambivalent the Persians had been, the Greeks did not want to be ruled by foreigners. Violence might not have erupted, however, except for the ambitions of one man, at least according to Herodotus. It started in Miletus, one of the leading cities in Asia Minor, for a very long time. In 500 BC, the island of Naxos was in stasis, a state of internal strife, in which the Demos seized power and the aristocrats fled to Miletus, where they were on friendly terms with the former tyrant Histiaeus, who at that time was in Susa, at the court of Darius. The current tyrant, his nephew Aristagoras, had somehow gotten into hot water with Darius. In order to get back into Darius's favor, he enlisted the support of Artaphernes, the Persian satrap in Sardis, who was also the brother of Darius, to back an expedition against the island of Naxos which at that time was the most prosperous of the Greek islands, due to their towering mountains trapping in clouds needed to bring down heavy rainfall for intensive agriculture. Thus, it grew to become a hub for regional maritime trade. If Artaphernes provided an army, Aristagoras vowed to conquer the island and would give him a share of the spoils to cover the cost of raising the army, plus some for his troubles. Also, as Aristagoras pointed out, it would make a convenient stepping stone for any Persian invasion force crossing the Aegean, and he no doubt could take the rest of the Cyclades, if he so chose. Convinced this was a good idea, Artaphernes sought permission from Darius, who agreed to provide him with 200 ships and approximately 8,000 soldiers to support the invasion. Aristagoras, though, failed to mention to him that his own position in Miletus had become problematic as the Milesians grew obsessed with the democratic revolution in Athens and started to agitate for a similar government. Thus, the tyrant needed to score a big win that would recapture their admiration and loyalty. 
Anyways, he convinced the satrap that if they secretly sailed, they could easily take the island, and so off they went in the spring of 499 BC. Artaphernes placed his cousin, Megabatus, in command of the Persian force. The expedition quickly descended into a debacle, as Aristagoras quickly found himself at increasing odds with Megabatus on the journey towards Naxos. One night, as Megabatus was making his rounds of the watch on the ships, he noticed that no one was on guard duty on the ship from Mindos. Infuriated by this, he ordered his bodyguards to find the man in charge of the ship, whose name was Skylax, not to be confused with the explorer that Darius had sent from the Indian subcontinent through the Persian Gulf. Anyways, Skylax was ordered to be tied up, and then his head was to be shoved through an oar hole, presumably so that he would be forced to keep watch. When Aristagoras had heard news of this, he untied the man, infuriating Megabatus. Herodotus says that Megabatus then sent news ahead to Anaxos of their impending attack, and so they were able to defend themselves successfully against Aristagoras's force. It is also possible, however, that this story was spread by Aristagoras after the fact, as an excuse for his failure. Anyways, the assault on Naxos was a complete debacle, as the Ionian Greeks' fortifications were too strong and the city was well supplied. They had besieged the city for four months, until food and money ran out in the Persian camp and they were forced to go home, leaving the island without making a dent. To make matters worse, when Megabatus reported back to his cousin, Artaphernes, he blamed the failure on the Greek lines and Aristagoras' incompetence. And so Aristagoras was now in a lot of trouble, as he wasted Persian time and money, realizing that his position with the Persians couldn't be salvaged. As he fully expected to be stripped of his position by Artaphernes, he decided to recoup his failing fortunes by latching onto the Milesians and inciting them to revolt. And so, in the autumn of 499 BC, Aristagoras held a meeting with the leading citizens of Miletus. He declared that in his opinion, the Milesians should revolt, to which all but Hecateus agreed. Hecateus advised them that war with Persia was foolish, and recited a list of all of the peoples under Darius's rule. Seeing that everyone but him had made up their minds, Hecateus relented and tried to give them good counsel anyway, saying, If you do revolt, seize the treasure of the temple of Apollo at Didyma, and become masters of the sea, for if you do not, the enemy will. Unfortunately, this advice was not taken, and it will come back to haunt them. It's not clear how Herodotus's tradition fits into this, though. Aristagoras' uncle Histiaeus supposedly sent a fateful message to him, tattooing communication on a shaved head of a slave, and then letting the hair grow back. When Aristagoras shaved his head, per his uncle's instructions, it revealed a message for him to revolt against the Persians. Herodotus suggests that this was because Histiaeus was desperate to return to Ionia, and thought that he would be sent there if there was rebellion. However, it's highly improbable that this was the case. A story speculating that Histiaeus instigated the rebellion probably came about after the fact, due to his subsequent conduct, which we will cover later in this episode, or possibly even invented by Histiaeus himself. Regardless, this was the beginning of the famous Ionian Revolt in the fall of 499 BC, when Aristagoras openly declared his revolt against Darius, abdicated his rule as tyrant, and declared Miletus to be a democracy. Aristagoras was able to persuade the Ionian Greeks to revolt easily, because most were not happy being subjects anyway, as they were not given the same favorable trade rights 
that they once had with the Lydians, were taxed especially hard, were ruled by unchecked tyrants, and were consistently drafted to fight their Asiatic Greek cousins in the Aegean. The army that had been sent to Naxos was still assembled at Myus and included contingents from not only Ionia, but also Aeolia and Doris, as well as men from Mytilene, Mylesa, Termera, and Chime. Aristagoras thus sent men to capture all of the Greek tyrants present in the army, and then handed them over to their respective cities in order to gain their cooperation. And all polis along the coast began to overthrow their satraps and establish isonomia, or democracies. Most fell without bloodshed, but the tyrant of Mytilene, a man named Chios, was so unpopular that he was stoned to death. Chios had been given his tyranny by Darius thanks to his, what turned out to be wise advice, not to turn down the Danube River during the Scythian invasion, which we described last episode. Those tyrants who escaped with their lives fled to the security of Sardis and an enraged Artaphernes. Herodotus does not mention this, but it has been suggested that Aristagoras also took possession of the ships the Persians had supplied. If this is true, it may explain the length of time it took for the Persians to launch a naval assault on Ionia, since they would have needed to build a new fleet first. The issue by the rebel cities of coinages on a common standard shows a wide measure of unity and determination in the revolt. Although Herodotus presents the revolt as a consequence of Aristagoras and Histiaeus' personal motives, it is clear that Ionia must have been ripe for rebellion anyway. The primary grievance was the tyrants installed by the Persians. While Greek states had in the past often been ruled by tyrants, this was a form of government on the decline, except in Sicily. Moreover, past tyrants had to be strong and able leaders, whereas the rulers appointed by the Persians were simply puppet representatives of the Persians. Backed by Persian military might, these tyrants did not need the support of the population and could thus rule absolutely. Aristagoras' actions have thus been likened to tossing a flame into a kindling box. They incited rebellion across Ionia, and tyrannies were everywhere abolished, and democracies established in their place. Although Aristagoras had brought the Asiatic Greeks into the revolt, he knew that a successful revolt from the Persian Empire was no small task, and it would require a united Ionian front. So while the Ionian polis were drafting their constitutions and formalizing their new political structures, he turned his attention to preparations for war. He dispatched a trusted officer to travel up the coast where the Persian fleet laid at anchor and convinced the senior Ionian officers of his plans. The following morning, quickly and silently, the entire fleet sailed from Miletus. Meanwhile, Aristagoras went to Sparta. He carried with him a bronze map of the known world, the seas and the rivers, in order to show Cleomenes the richness of Persia and how much wealth he could seize. Capitalizing on the Spartans' dislike of foreign customs, he suggested that they could easily defeat men who fought in trousers and wore turbans on their heads. Then, Cleomenes asked how far away is Susa, the capital of Persia, from Miletus. The typically shrewd Aristagoras, though, slipped up and spoke the truth here, when he responded that it is about a three-month's march, to which Cleomenes responded with a resounding no. For the amount of time that this campaign would require is way too long to leave Sparta undefended in case of a helot rebellion. Cleomenes, like most mainland Greeks in general, had no idea of the vastness of the Near East. Not yet willing to abandon his quest, a disappointed Aristagoras followed Cleomenes to his house, carrying with him the customary sign of supplication, an olive branch covered in wool, 
and begged Cleomenes to reconsider, and even tried to bribe him with a sum of 50 talents. At this point, Cleomenes' nine-year-old daughter, named Gorgo, who was allowed to sit in for the entire conversation, then exclaimed, Father, this stranger will corrupt you if you don't get away from him. To which Cleomenes obliged, and told Aristagoras his answer was final, and he ought to leave Sparta now. He then heeded to his daughter's advice, and left the room. Herodotus here illustrates the Spartan character as most Greeks imagined it, cautious, conservative, and leery of foreign adventures. It also highlighted the assertiveness of Spartan women and the respect due to them. Aristagoras then tried Athens, where he had much more success, as the Athenians were much more sympathetic to his cause. Herodotus says that this is an example of how easy it is to deceive many people, meaning a democracy, rather than one king. However, it was probably a case of them being more daring than the Spartans, as they were not constrained by the fear of a slave rebellion in their absence. And so the Athenians agreed to send 20 ships to aid the Ionians, which was a lot of ships for them at that point. During their empire, they had over 400, but probably only had about 50 at this time. So they were agreeing to send almost half of their current fleet. They were compelled this strongly to provide help because they have an Ionian connection. They were not on the best of terms with the Persians after their previous two exchanges and feared that they might try to restore Hippias to power in Athens at some point in the nearer future, and they wanted to protect their commercial interest in the northeast Aegean. The Eretrians also sent five ships. They were eager to aid the Athenians as appreciation for destroying their longtime rival, Halkis, as we discussed in episode 27. Herodotus suggests that the Eretrians supported the revolt in order to repay the support the Milesians had given them some time previously, possibly referring to the Melantine War. It's also possible that Eretria, being a mercantile city itself, felt that their commercial livelihood would be threatened by Persian dominance of the Aegean. Regardless, Herodotus wrote that these ships were the beginning of trouble, both for the Greeks and the Persians, meaning it marked the beginnings of the Persian Wars. A lot of the information about the individual battles of the Ionian Revolt is not available. Herodotus' predecessor, Hecateus, had already written on this topic, so Herodotus only touched on it to build up the ensuing conflicts. Unfortunately, Hecateus' work has been lost, as we have previously discussed, but we do have enough information in Herodotus to get the general idea, even if it's not in as great of a detail as his later accounts of battles on the mainland. Over the winter of 499-498 BC, Aristagoras continued to foment rebellion. In one incident, he told a group of Paeonians, those who Darius had brought to live in Phrygia, to return to their homeland. Herodotus says that his only purpose in doing this was to piss off Darius even more. When the 25 Athenian Eretrian ships landed in Miletus in spring of 498 BC, they joined up with the main Ionian force near Ephesus. Declining to personally lead the force, Aristagoras appointed his brother, Caropinus, and another Milesian, Hermophantus, as generals. This force was then guided by the Ephesians inland as they journeyed along the Caister River, crossed over Mount Tamalus, and came to Sardis. The Greek force caught the Persians unaware and were able to capture the lower part of the city. Artaphernes took refuge on the Acropolis and held it with a significant force of men. The Greeks then set fire to the lower city including the temple of the native goddess Sibylle. It quickly spread, and before long, Sardis was burnt to the ground. Herodotus suggests that this was an accident. He said that their homes had roofs constructed with reeds, 
and so when one of the houses caught on fire, it quickly spread from house to house until it engulfed the entire city. Regardless, with this action, there was no doubt now that Greece and Persia were at war. After Persian reinforcements arrived down from the citadel, the Greeks left behind the smoking ruins and withdrew from Sardis back to Ionia at Ephesus. Meanwhile, when the Persians who dwelled in the districts west of the Halys River heard of the surprise attack on Sardis, they gathered together and marched to the relief of Artaphernes. When they arrived at Sardis and found that the Greeks had recently departed, they followed their tracks back towards Ionia and were able to catch up with the Greeks just outside of Ephesus. The Persian forces must have been primarily cavalry, which would have given them the ability to catch up with the Greek hoplites. The tired Greeks were no match for the fresh Persian forces and were completely routed in the battle, which ensued at Ephesus. Many were killed, including the Eretrian general, Euachides, who had many victories in the athletic games, for which he had received much praise from Simonides of Chios, a famous 5th century BC poet. The Ionians who escaped the battle made for their own cities, while the remaining Athenians and Eretrians chose to return to their ships. Realizing that the Persians were not an easy prey, like Aristagoras had described, and thus there was no way for them to sustain a prolonged war in Ionia, the Athenians and Eretrians sailed home, leaving their Ionian allies to defend themselves. Aristagoras would send many messengers with appeals to the Athenians, but to no avail. However, the Ionians remained committed to their rebellion, and the Persians did not follow up their victory at Ephesus. Presumably, their makeshift forces were not equipped to lay siege to any of the Ionian cities. Also, despite their defeat at Ephesus, the revolt actually spread further. The Ionians sent men to the Hellespont and Propontis, and captured Byzantium and other nearby cities. They also persuaded the Carians to join the rebellion. Furthermore, seeing the spread of the rebellion, the kings of Cyprus also revolted against Persian rule, without any outside persuasion. Herodotus's narrative is ambiguous in his chronology, but it seems that the Persians waited until the next campaigning season, in 497 BC, before launching a counteroffensive, when Darius dispatched three of his generals, Darius, Hymaeus, and Otanes, each at the head of their own army, in order to subdue the rebellion in Asia Minor. These men were all married to a daughter of Darius. Apparently, either being related to or marrying one of Darius's daughters really helped one's chances of becoming a Persian general. The leader of the Cypriot revolt was Onesilus, the brother of Gorgas, the current king of Salamis. Seeing that the Ionians had revolted, Onesilus tried to persuade Gorgas to revolt from the Persians too, but he did not want to revolt. So one day, Gorgas went outside the city of Salamis. Onesilus shut the gates and locked his brother out of the city, and made himself king. Deprived of his city, Gorgas then went over to the Persians, and Onesilus persuaded the other Cypriots, apart from the Amethusians, to revolt. He then settled down to besiege Amethyst. The following year, in 497 BC, while still besieging Amethyst, Onesilus heard that a Persian force, under Artibias, had been dispatched to Cyprus. Onesilus thus sent messengers to Ionia, asking them to send reinforcements, which they did in great force. A Persian army eventually arrived in Cyprus from Cilicia, supported by a Phoenician fleet. The army proceeded to Salamis, while the fleet sailed around the Keys of Cyprus, which is the long promontory that juts out at the northeast part of the island. The Ionians opted to fight at sea against the Phoenicians, while the Cypriots were to face the land forces of the Persian army. 
the Salaminians and the Siloians, the people from the town named after Solon, were positioned opposite of the Persians, while the rest of the Cypriots were positioned to face the rest of the Persian army. Onesilus himself took up a position opposite of Artibias, general of the Persian army. A simultaneous land and sea battle then ensued. At sea, the Ionian fleet defeated the Phoenician fleet, with the Samians especially distinguishing themselves. On land, the Cypriots had gained the initial advantage, with Onesilus even killing Artibios. He did this because, according to Herodotus, it was well known that Artibias's horse stands on its hind legs when directly in front of a hoplite. So at the moment he confronted him, and the horse stood up on its hind legs, and it cast its hooves upon the shield of Onesilus, he had a shield-bearer jump out with a scythe and slice off the horse's forelegs. At that point, Artibias fell off his horse to the ground and Onesilus killed him. However, things would eventually take an unexpected turn in the opposite direction for the Cypriots, as the defection of two contingents to the Persian side crippled their cause, and so they were routed. In the process, Onesilus was killed. His head was cut off and taken back to Amethys, the city he had besieged for not joining the revolt, where they hung it up over the city gates. The head apparently hung there rotting until swarms of bees entered it and filled it with honeycombs. Anyways, learning of the Persian victory on land, the Ionians abandoned Cyprus and sailed home without delay. The rebel Cypriot cities were thus left to defend themselves, as they were all placed under siege, except for Corion and Salamis, who had turned traitor and were thus pro-Persian now. Salamis was given back to its former king Gorgas. After five months, all Cypriot cities had been brought back under Persian control, and their revolt was thus crushed. Meanwhile, the three generals began their three-pronged attack against the Asiatic Greeks, sucking the life out of the rebellion for the next four years by laying siege to each polis one by one. Darissus, who seems to have had the largest army, initially took his forces to the Hellespont. There, he systematically besieged and took the cities of Dardanus, Abydus, Percote, Lampsacus, and Piasus, each in a single day, according to Herodotus. However, when he heard that the Carians were revolting, he moved his army southwards to crush this new rebellion. Hymais went to the Propontis and took the city of Chios. After Darissus moved his forces towards Caria, Hymais marched towards the Hellespont and captured many of the Aeolian cities, as well as some of the cities in the Troad. However, he then fell ill and died, ending his campaign. The Carians gathered at what are called the White Pillars on the Marsissus River, a tributary of the Meander River. We aren't sure what is meant by the White Pillars. Anyways, Pixodorus, the son-in-law of Senesis, the king of Cilicia, suggested that the Carians should cross the river and fight with it at their backs, so as to prevent retreat, and thus make them fight more bravely. This idea was rejected, and the Carians made the Persians cross the river to fight them. According to Herodotus, the ensuing battle was a long affair, with the Carians fighting stubbornly, before eventually succumbing to the weight of the Persian numbers. Herodotus suggests that 10,000 Carians and 2,000 Persians died in the battle. The survivors of Marcius fell back to a sacred grove of Zeus at Lambranda and deliberated whether to surrender to the Persians or to flee Asia altogether. However, while deliberating, they were joined by a Milesian army, and with these reinforcements, they resolved instead to carry on fighting. The Persians then attacked the army at Lambranda and inflicted an even heavier defeat, with the Milesians suffering particularly bad casualties. After the double victory over the Carians, 
Darissus began the task of reducing the Carian strongholds. The Carians resolved to fight on, though, and decided to lay an ambush for Darissus on the road through Pedasus. Herodotus implies that this occurred more or less directly after Lombranda, but it has also been suggested that Pedasus occurred the following year, in 496 BC, giving the Carians time to regroup. Anyways, the Persians arrived at Pedasus during the night, and the ambush was sprung to great effect. The Persian army was annihilated, and Darissus and the other Persian commanders were slain. Meanwhile, the third Persian army, under the command of Otanes, together with Artaphernes, campaigned in Ionia and Aeolia. They retook Clazomenae and Chime, probably in 497 BC. At the height of the Persian counteroffensive, Aristagoras, sensing the untenability of his position, decided to abandon his responsibilities as leader of Miletus and of the revolt. Prior to this, he called a meeting with all of his supporters to decide what they should do. In that assembly, Hecateus again offered good advice, which Aristagoras did not take. He told him to sail to the neighboring island of Leros, which had a very fortified citadel, and if fortune favored them, from there they might easily then return to Miletus. Well, this was rejected, and so he and all of his supporters left Miletus for Mercanos, the city in Thrace that Darius had granted to Histiaeus before recalling him to Susa. Herodotus, who evidently holds a rather negative view of him, suggests that Aristagoras simply lost his nerve and fled. Some modern historians have suggested that he went to Thrace to exploit the greater natural resources of the region needed to support the revolt. Others have suggested that, finding himself at the center of an internal conflict in Miletus, he chose to go into exile, rather than exacerbate the situation. Regardless, once at Myrkanos, he started campaigning against the local Thracian population. However, in 496 BC, he was killed while besieging a Thracian town. He was the one man who might have been able to provide the revolt with a sense of purpose, but after his death, the revolt was left effectively leaderless. Also, it seems that Darius's early excursion beyond the Danube didn't make any lasting impressions on the Scythians, though, because also in 496 BC, we see them leading a large expedition southward to raid Thrace, ultimately driving Miltiades out of the Chersonies. He then went on to capture the islands of Lemnos and Imbros in the name of Athens, before coming back and pushing the Scythians back north. Shortly after this, Histiaeus was released from his duties in Susa by Darius and sent back to Ionia. He had persuaded Darius to let him travel there by promising to make the Ionians end the revolt. However, Herodotus explicitly states that his real aim was simply to escape his quasi-captivity in Persia. When he arrived in Sardis, Artaphernes directly accused him of fomenting the rebellion with Aristagoras, saying, I will tell you, Histiaeus, the truth of this business. It was you who stitched this shoe, and Aristagoras who put it on. Histiaeus played dumb and fled that night to Chios, and eventually made his way back to Miletus. However, having just got rid of one tyrant, the Milesians were in no mood to receive Histiaeus back. He therefore went to Mytilene on Lesbos and persuaded the lesbians to give him eight triremes. He then set sail for Byzantium, with all those that he had convinced to follow him. There, he established himself as a pirate, seizing all ships that attempted to sail through the Bosporus, unless they agreed to serve him. The disaster of Pedasus seems to have created a stalemate in the land campaign for both armies. So at the end of 496 and during 495 BC, we see very little movement on all fronts, in which both sides began gearing up for what would be their final showdown. 
By 494 BC, the Persian forces had regrouped and were gathered into one army. The general, Datis, an expert on Greek affairs, was dispatched to Ionia by this time. It is therefore possible that he was in overall command of this Persian offensive. Persian army made their way straight for the epicenter of the rebellion, that being Miletus, and what would become the most decisive battle of the Ionian revolt. Hearing of the approach of this massive Persian force, the Ionians met at the Panionium and decided not to attempt to fight them on land. They instead opted to leave the Milesians to defend their walls, while they gathered every ship that they could and made their way for the island of Lade, off the coast of Miletus, in order to fight for Miletus at sea. They were joined by the Aeolian islanders from Lesbos, and altogether this Greek fleet had 353 triremes. The Greek lineup went as follows, from left to right, Miletus, Priene, Maus, Tios, Chios, Erythrae, Phocaea, Lesbos, and Samos. The Persian fleet was composed of Phoenicians, Egyptians, Cilicians, and the resubjugated Cypriots, numbering 600 ships. According to Herodotus, the Persian commanders were concerned that they would not be able to defeat the smaller Ionian fleet and therefore would not be able to take Miletus. He doesn't state why they were afraid of a fleet half their size, and it was probably just an exaggeration by Herodotus. Based upon the actions that followed, it was probably just a cause of trying diplomatic overtures and avoiding more bloodshed against their former subjects. Anyways, so the Persian commanders sent the exiled former Ionian tyrants to Lade, where each tried to persuade his fellow citizens to desert to the Persians. This approach was initially unsuccessful, but in the week-long delay before the battle, divisions arose in the Greek camp. According to Herodotus, the lead Ionian general, Dionysius of Phocia, was drilling the fleet with long and arduous exercises. He had them practice the breakthrough maneuver, or the diakplus in Greek, literally meaning sailing out through, in which the ships rode through a line of enemy ships, then turned back to ram their sterns or their sides. At that point, the marines, or armored hoplites or archers, would fight from the deck. Apparently the Ionians, as Herodotus puts it, were unaccustomed to hard labor, and so after seven days, they began to complain until they refused to obey him any further. Realizing the hot mess that was the Greek fleet at that point, these divisions led to the Samians secretly sending their former tyrant, Aeches, to agree to the terms offered by the Persians. Soon after, the Persian fleet moved to attack the non-unified Greek fleet, who sailed out to meet them. However, as the two sides neared each other, the Samians sailed away back to Samos. The lesbians, seeing their neighbors in the battle line sail away, promptly fled as well, causing the rest of the Ionian line to dissolve too. The Chians, together with a small number of ships from various other cities, stubbornly remained and fought the Persians, but most of the Ionians fled to their cities. The Chians fought valiantly, at one point breaking the Persian line and capturing many ships but sustaining many losses of their own. Eventually, the remaining Chian ship sailed away, thereby ending the battle. The Chian survivors, though, were not out of danger yet. Thinking that the Chian ships were pirates when they sailed near Ephesus at night, the Ephesians attacked and killed them all. Likewise, Dionysius of Phocia managed to seize three enemy ships and decided instead to sail off to Phoenicia and then to Sicily and establish himself as a pirate robbing Carthaginian and Etruscan vessels. The destruction of the Greek fleet 
meant that Miletus was now undefended against a Persian assault. The city was placed under siege until it finally fell in 493 BC. The Persians took vengeance by laying waste and burning the city to the ground. Most of the men were killed, and their women and children were hauled off as slaves. The men who survived were brought before Darius at Susa, who then settled them on the coast of the Persian Gulf, near the mouth of the Tigris. Archaeological evidence substantiates this, showing widespread signs of destruction and abandonment of much of the city in the aftermath of Lade. The city would be reoccupied, but it would never recapture its former greatness. The Persians took the city and coastal land for themselves, and gave the rest to the Carians from Pedasus. Most of Caria now surrendered to the Persians, although some strongholds had to be captured through force. Many Samians were appalled by the actions of their generals at Lade, and resolved to emigrate before their city would be ruled by a tyrant again. They accepted an invitation by Anaxilus, tyrant of Regium, to settle at Zankel on the Sicilian side of the Straits, and took with them the Milesians who had managed to escape from the Persians. In seizing Zankel, they booted out the former tyrant Scythes, who fled to the Persian court. We recount all of this in greater detail in episode 29. Samos itself was spared from destruction by the Persians because of the Samian defection at Laude. When Histiaeus heard of the fall of Miletus, he seems to have appointed himself as leader of the resistance against Persia. Setting out from Byzantium with his force of lesbians, he sailed to Chios. The Chians refused to receive him, so he attacked and destroyed the remnants of the Chian fleet. Crippled by their two defeats at sea, the Chians then acquiesced to Histiaeus' leadership. It was probably at this point that he may have spread the famous story that he instigated the revolt with a message written on the slave's head. Histiaeus then gathered a large force of Ionians and Aeolians and went to besiege Thassos. However, he then received the news that the Persian fleet was setting out from Miletus to attack the rest of Ionia, so he quickly returned to Lesbos. In order to feed his army, he led foraging expeditions to the mainland, Neritarnius and Maius. A large Persian force under Harpagus, not to be confused with the Median Harpagus who served Cyrus, was in the area and eventually intercepted one foraging expedition near Mileni. The ensuing battle was hard fought, but ended when a Persian cavalry charge routed the Greek line. Histiaeus himself surrendered to the Persians, thinking that he would be able to talk himself into a pardon from Darius. However, he was taken to Artaphernes instead, who, fully aware of Histiaeus's past treachery, impaled and crucified him, and then sent his embalmed head to Darius. The great king, though, was angry at them for reprimanding him instead of bringing Histiaeus to him alive. So he ordered them to wash the head, wrap it up, and bury it, since regardless of how he ended his life, Histiaeus had been a great benefactor to Darius and the Persians. The Persian fleet and army wintered at Miletus before setting out in 493 BC to stamp out the last embers of the revolt. They took control of the islands of Chios, Lesbos, and Tenedos. On each, they made a sort of human net of troops and swept across the whole island to flush out any hiding rebels. They then moved to the mainland and captured each of the remaining cities of Ionia, similarly seeking out any remaining rebels. Although the cities of Ionia were undoubtedly harrowed in the aftermath, none seemed to have suffered quite the fate of Miletus. Herodotus says that the Persians chose the most handsome boys from each city and castrated them, making them eunuchs, as well as the most beautiful virgin girls from each city and sent them away to the king's harem, and then burned down the temples of the cities. In particular, they plundered and burned the temple of Apollo at Didyma, one of the chief oracle sanctuaries of the Greek world. 
The city was not destroyed, but its period of prosperity would be over. We can suspect that the burning of Apollo's shrine was not approved by Darius himself. The respect for which he felt for the Greeks' oracle god is attested in the letter of admonition which he addressed to Gadates, mentioned last episode. Anyways, Herodotus probably exaggerates the scale of devastation for the Ionian cities, because in just 13 years, they had more or less returned to normal and were able to equip a large fleet for the second Persian invasion of Greece. Meanwhile, the Persian fleet, campaigning in the Hellespont, re-established Persian control over the Thracian coast of the Hellespont, the Propontis, and the Bosporus areas, which had joined the revolt. With all of Asia Minor and Thrace now firmly returned to Persian rule, the revolt was officially over. Despite the sack of Miletus, Darius showed a surprising amount of leniency to the others, which reflects his wisdom and forethought. Since these cities were now Persian territory again, it made no sense to harm their economies further or to drive them to further rebellions. Thus, he had Artaphernes speak with the Greek leaders about what went wrong and listen to their suggestions. He summoned representatives from each Ionian city to Sardis and told them that henceforth, rather than continually quarreling and fighting between themselves, disputes would be resolved by arbitration, seemingly by a panel of judges. Thus, he compelled the Ionian cities to make treaties with one another, and then he resurveyed the land of each city and reassessed their tribute level. The biggest problem was the flat rate taxes. In order to fix that, he changed it to a progressive tax, where instead of each city paying the same amount, it now depended on the size of its territory and resources. Also, Mardonius, a nephew of Darius and current head general of the Persians, persuaded him to abolish the Ionian tyrannies and to let the Ionian Greeks keep the democracies that they had established to prevent further revolts. The peace established by Artaphernes would long be remembered as just and fair. Darius actively encouraged the Persian nobility of the area to participate in Greek religious practices, especially those dealing with Apollo. Records from the period indicate that the Persian and Greek nobility began to intermarry, and the children of Persian nobles were given Greek names instead of Persian names. Darius's conciliatory policies were used as a type of propaganda campaign against the mainland Greeks, so that, as we will see, when Darius sent heralds throughout Greece demanding submission, Many city-states were receptive to his offer. The decade of the 490s BC, beginning with the initial Athenian participation in the Ionian Revolt, is particularly scant of literary sources. The internal politics of Athens during this period thus can only be surmised, but the events of 499 BC suggest that the issues of Hippias and Persia had become connected, and that the dividing line between the political factions concerned future Athenian policy towards both. One side believed that they should cooperate with Persia, and therefore restore Hippias, while the other argued for resistance, no matter the cost. The sending and then the withdrawal of the twenty ships could have been approved only by the people in the Ecclesia, and thus there must have been a full debate on both occasions in which arguments for and against intervention on behalf of the Ionians were expressed. Those who favored resistance must have won the day on the first occasion, when the Athenians voted to send nearly half of their navy to the Ionian Greeks but those who favored cooperation with or cautioned towards Persia enjoyed success subsequently with the ship's recall. As the course of the Ionian Revolt unfolded from 499 to 494 BC, this issue must have been placed numerous times on the agenda of the Ecclesia for discussion. It is into this context that we must place the very few events mentioned in the sources. 
The first of these can be seen in the election for the eponymous archonship of 496-495 BC. The winner was a man named Hipparchus, not to be confused with the son of Pisistratus. This Hipparchus, though, was a relative to the Pisistratids. It would seem that his kinship tie to Hippias was not the political handicap that it would have been 10 or even 5 years earlier. This also seems to signify the ascendancy of the faction in Athens that won at peace with Persia. As we mentioned, by 496 BC, the Persians were having great success regaining the western seaboard along Asia Minor. Such success would have stirred fears of retribution against Athens for taking part in the burning of Sardis, which would have been their third insult against Darius. Three strikes and you're out, right? Well, Hipparchus' election may have been an attempt to give a position of authority in order to use his influence on behalf of the Athenians with Hippias and through him with Persia, possibly to explain away the initial involvement in the revolt as an error of judgment which had been quickly rectified. At the very least, his appointment would have been seen as opposition to the policy of open warfare against Persia. Tradition says that the first ostracism in Athenian history was aimed at him shortly thereafter in 495 BC, although it was unsuccessful. So we see here that there was definitely was some who won at war with Persia, but they were not in the position of political power. However, political opinion would soon enough change against peace with Persia. In 494 BC, Cleomenes received an oracle at Delphi, predicting that he would capture Argos. So he marched his army to the territory of Thyrea on the eastern coast of the Peloponnese, the region between Laconia and Argos. From there, he took his army on boats to the territory of Tyrants and Notplia. When the Argives learned of this, they rushed to the coast to oppose him, and drawing near Tyrants, the two armies met at a place called Sepia. Herodotus reports that the Argives did not attack immediately because they were weary of an oracle that they too had just received, and so they decided to avoid being tricked by carrying out all instructions that were given by the Spartan herald. When Cleomenes realized that the Argives were performing whatever his herald had ordered, he decided to use this to his advantage. He had his herald announce the next morning that they were getting ready to eat breakfast, but meanwhile, his troops already had been fully armored and were advancing towards the Argives' position. This sneak attack resulted in many Argive deaths, 6,000 by Herodotus' account, which is probably an exaggeration, while the rest fled for refuge to the sacred grove of Argos where the Spartan army surrounded them and stood on guard. In order to trick them into coming out, because if he were to attack them, it would be sacrilege, he used deserters to learn the names of those left inside. His herald then yelled out their name and said that their ransom had been paid, and they were free to go. But when they each came out, they were killed, one by one. Cleomenes managed to induce 50 Argives to do this before they discovered what he was doing. At that point, they refused to come out, and a frustrated Cleomenes ordered his army to pile up wood around the grove and light the entire thing on fire. As it burned, he asked one of the Argive deserters which god this grove belonged to. When he learned it was Apollo's, he figured that his prophecy was thus fulfilled. The details of this account at the end may have been later fabricated and circulated to explain the events at the end of Cleomenes' life, which we will get to shortly. Regardless, the massacre of the Argive men essentially ensured that Sparta's arch-rival would not challenge their supremacy for a long time. Regardless of Herodotus' oracles, it is not clear why the attack on Argos took place though. It may have been the result of Sparta's concerns over Argos's increasingly pro-Persian tendencies, or simply because they were bitter rivals and was about that time for another go at each other. It also should be noted though, 
and it may have nothing at all to do with the Battle of Sepia. But one of the Cypriot contingents who turned traitor during their land battle with the Persians were those from Curion, which was a colony of Argos. This is interesting because we know that Argos also held pro-Persian views. The Athenians were naturally troubled by the outcome of the Ionian Revolt. In addition, the annihilation of Miletus, one of the most cultured cities in the Greek world, resonated throughout Athens. In 493 BC, an early famous Athenian tragedian named Phrynichus presented the capture of Miletus, a play which is now lost. According to Herodotus, though, the play caused such a disturbance amongst the Athenians that the audience bursted into tears, and the government thus fined him a thousand drachmas for reminding them of their misfortune. They also decreed that nobody should ever produce this play, or anything like it, again. It was the only time we have on record of censorship in Athenian drama. Phrynichus, though, probably was just trying to install anger against the Persians, supporting the idea of preparation for what he thought was an inevitable Athenian-Persian war. Although the Athenians had withdrawn from the rebellion after the burning of Sardis, their outrage reveals their growing sense of identity amongst the Ionians, and more importantly, that an anti-Persian party was gradually becoming stronger in Athens. In this tense political situation, over the next several years, Themistocles and Miltiades became the face of Athenian politics. Themistocles was one of the new breed of non-aristocratic politicians who rose to prominence in the early years of the Athenian democracy. He was a populist, having the support of lower-class Athenians, and generally being at odds with the Athenian nobility. Plutarch in his Life of Themistocles relays his career in great detail. Born around 524 BC, his father, Neoclus, was nobody important politically, and there were allegations that his mother was a Thracian slave. The latter probably was not true and was just political slander by his later opponents. But Themistocles did grow up in a sort of immigrant district of Athens called Sinosargus, which was located outside the city walls. So, his family was poor. But the new system of government in Athens opened up a wealth of opportunity for men like Themistocles, who previously would have had no access to power. Moreover, the new institutions of the democracy required skills that had previously been unimportant in government. As a youth, Plutarch describes Themistocles as brash and curious, daring and ambitious, contradictory and obscure, and often led by his innate impetuousness, and he was to prove himself a master of this new Athenian political system. As the historian Tom Holland puts it, he could infight, he could network, he could spin, and crucially, he knew how to make himself visible. Themistocles was the proverbial trickster of Athenian politics, a classical Athenian version of the wily Odysseus. As a young man, Themistocles moved to the Karamikos, the potter's quarter of the city, to the northwest of the Acropolis. This move marked him out as a man of the people, and allowed him to interact more easily with ordinary citizens. He began building up a support base amongst these newly empowered citizens. He wooed the poor, and they fittingly loved him back, touring the taverns, the markets, the docks, and canvassing where no politician had thought to canvass before, making sure never to forget a single voter's name. Themistocles had set his eyes on a radical new constituency. However, he took care to ensure that he did not alienate the nobility of Athens. He was taken under the wing by a sort of proto-sophist named Menesiphilus, who taught him the art of persuasive speaking. He then began to practice law, and would become the first person in Athenian politics to prepare public life in this way. His ability as an attorney and arbitrator 
used in the service of the common people, gained him further popularity. And so, on the back of this popularity, at the age of 32, in 493-492 BC, the earliest age one could run for political office, Themistocles was elected as eponymous archon, the highest of the magistracies in Athens. He was also a member of the faction eager to prepare for a battle with the Persians, so this also may be indicative of the mood in Athens at that point. And so, during his archonship, he persuaded the Athenians to move their naval and commercial base from the unfortified bay at Thalarone to the three rocky harbors at Piraeus, which sat five miles away from Athens. Then he had the wall secured. Themistocles would be a champion of the navy for the rest of his career. Since Themistocles, unlike most Athenian politicians, lacked strong family connections and the support of the leisured land-owning class, he sought the backing of those who made their living by trade. He was acutely sensitive to the Persian threat, and for this, Thucydides praised him for his ability to foresee what the future held. However, as Plutarch implies, since naval power relied on the mass mobilization of the common people as rowers, such a policy put more power into their hands, and thus into Themistocles' own hands. Regardless, Themistocles served Greece well at this critical juncture. Secondly, there was Miltiades, from the noble Philiidae clan. We have talked about him and his family plenty in previous episodes. But in 492 BC, after the Persians managed to reassert control of the Hellespont following the Ionian Revolt, Miltiades fled the Chersonese, escaping the Phoenician fleet and arriving back in Athens with anti-Persian sentiments of his own. Not all Athenians were convinced to go to war with Persia, though. They were the greatest power in the known world and had just bashed in their fellow Ionians in Asia Minor. Many probably preferred coming to terms with the Persians, meaning Hippias would be installed as satrap instead of having Athens burned to the ground like Miletus. However, Miltiades was brought to trial on the charge of tyranny after he arrived back at Athens. It is difficult to believe that there was such a crime in Athenian law, and thus the motive for this prosecution appears to have been political. Herodotus, though, does not identify the accusers, so it is not possible to know for certain whether rivalry and jealousy between the aristocratic clans or disagreement over policy towards Persia was the primary cause of his prosecution. But because of actions taken a few years down the road, which we will discuss next episode, some scholars believe it was Xanthippus, the father of Pericles, and a political ally of the Alcmeonidae, who was the prosecutor, and thus it would have been politically motivated. However, what is certain is that his acquittal and election as one of the ten strategoi became a huge boost for those who supported an anti-Persian policy. This may suggest that the majority of the Athenians were preparing to fight the Persians and knew that they needed his help. He probably presented himself as a defender of Greek freedoms against Persian despotism and also promoted the fact that he had seen Persian tactics firsthand. We do know that he also gifted the islands of Lemnos and Imbros to Athens, two islands which he captured for himself as a Thracian tyrant. All of these things combined probably led to his exoneration. Miltiades and Themistocles would play major roles for the Athenians in the upcoming Persian Wars. Whether their willingness to oppose Persia brought Themistocles and Miltiades into a political alliance is impossible to say, as there is no direct evidence. However, Miltiades was a politician of the first rank, due to his vast experience, while Themistocles' election to the archonship marked only the beginning of a promising political career. Therefore, the possibility of a political relationship between the two should be treated with great caution. Although Asia Minor had been brought back into the Persian fold with brute force 
and then peace settlements that were generally considered to be both just and fair. The Ionian Revolt constituted the first major conflict between Greece and the Persian Empire, and as such represents the first phase of the Greco-Persian Wars. For the Persians, the only unfinished business that remained was to exact punishment on Athens and Eretria for supporting the revolt. The Ionian Revolt had severely threatened the stability of Darius's empire, and the states of mainland Greece would continue to threaten that stability unless dealt with properly. Darius thus began to contemplate the complete conquest of Greece, beginning with the destruction of Athens and Eretria. Furthermore, the desire to avenge the burning of Sardis inflamed Darius's interests in Greece. He was doubly furious at this because in his eyes the Athenians were his subjects. Herodotus says that when he found out about the sack of Sardis, Darius took a bow, set an arrow on its string, and shot the arrow towards the heavens. As it flew high into the air, he shouted, Zeus, let it be granted to me to punish the Athenians. The Greeks later claimed that to keep himself from forgetting this vow in the presence of his many other concerns as the ruler of such a huge empire, Darius supposedly ordered one of his servants to repeat to him, Sire, remember the Athenians, three times whenever he sat down to dinner every day in order to fan his rage. Well, that rage kept burning, and the Persians would invade Greece soon enough, hell-bent on destroying the Eretrians and Athenians and bringing the rest of Greece under the Persian yoke. Despite their recent animosity, the Athenians and Spartans would set aside their differences and come together to lead the Greek resistance against Persia, the greatest empire the world had ever known, not only in geographic terms, but also in manpower. Persia outstripped the Greeks in every category of material resources, from precious metals to soldiers. As such, the wars between the Persians and the Greeks pitted the equivalent of an elephant against a small swarm of mosquitoes. In such a conflict, a Greek victory seems improbable, to say the least. So find out how the Athenians bravely defended themselves on their home turf against such overwhelming odds next time on The History of Ancient Greece, Episode 36, The Marathon on Makoi. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, 
Thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled The Celestial Spheres from his album A Well-Tuned Lyre, The Just Intonation of Antiquity. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.